Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. How risky are the funds your IFA has sold you? Ways to give to charity and save tax at the same time. And the overseas pension traps you should avoid at all costs. All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Elaine Moore. Hello. Joe Cumbo. Hello. And our special studio guest, Tris Lumley of the new Philanthropy Capital. Let's start with a bit of advice news. There are just a few weeks to go now until the start of a massive experiment in retail financial regulation. From January, all financial advisors will have to agree fees with their clients up front, rather than being paid via commission from product providers. This change is known as the Retail Distribution Review, or RDR, and has been years in the making. IFAs are already supposed to consider their clients' risk appetite when making recommendations, but the advent of RDR will place much more emphasis on the risk scoring process. Elaine Moore has been looking at how it's done now and how it will be done in the future. Elaine, what have you found? What I've found out is that uh, risk profiling or risk rating has become much more important recently. So this is something that advisors and clients are really focused on. And it's not surprising when you think how much volatility has been going on recently and also the changes to what has traditionally been seen as sort of safe havens. So if you have cash and gilts providing very low yields, then people look at markets uh, sort of going all over the place and they're not quite sure what to do their money. So the idea of risk being uh, one of the first things that people think about when they're trying to allocate their um, their assets, uh, this has just become more important to everybody. And so what is happening at the start of next year is this big shake-up, of, as you said, it's a big experiment in the way that financial advice is being given to people and it's the way that financial products are being sold. And what it's doing is it's, it's kind of highlighting how risk is being um, assessed by advisors. So at the moment... All advisors are supposed to assess the um, suitability of anything they sell to clients, which sounds completely obvious, doesn't it? Because other, why would they be selling anything if it's not suitable? But the fact that the financial regulator has to actually point this out and has to keep on publishing documents that say you have to make products suitable shows that obviously some sales out there are not suitable at all. So what they've said is that all sales have to be suitable, but it's sort of up to the advisors how they work that suitability out. And what I've seen this week 
is that the ways the divisor have been doing this is all over the place. So some are, are sort of prescribing these numbers. So you're low risk, you're category one, you're high risk, you're category seven. Some aren't doing that at all. Some are just saying that you're low risk. So it's going to be quite hard and quite interesting, I think, for investors to work out exactly what risk profile their advisor is giving to them and whether it is actually suitable for them. So so effectively, there's no consistency. And an IFA at one end of the high street could have a, a completely different way of assessing you to, to an IFA sort of six doors down. Absolutely. The one thing they all have in common is they're all supposed to talk to you about this. They're supposed to explain to you what their risk profiling is and what how they judge different categories of risk. What's also um, the FSA has, has come out and said is that advisors are not allowed to just rely on extra external tools to work out risk. So there, we have these new documents that come along with funds, for example, and they have a little kind of risk rating that's based on historic volatility. Advisors are not allowed to just pick these numbers out and ascribe those to a client. They have to do some work themselves. They have to actually work out, you know, do those funds, does does that kind of risk rating go with what I consider that fund to be? Does that work with what the client is interested in? And will the client's risk profile change over time? So just because things are all good now, next year you may lose your job, your risk profile may come right down. So they have to kind of keep an eye on it. And has there been anything said about how IFA's clients themselves perceive risk. I've heard it said that uh, a lot of people describe themselves as low risk and when you actually look at what they've got in their portfolio, it's fairly high risk. It's funny, isn't it? Risk is almost a bit of a euphemism, I always think, because who wants to lose money? Nobody. But what risk actually means is are you willing to put some of your money on the line? Are you willing to risk not getting some of that money back? And as you said, if you ask most people, do you want to lose any of your money? Most of them would say no, thanks. But if you want to be high risk and if you want to, therefore go for the possibly better returns, you have to risk some of your money to get that. So that, again, is perhaps what the regulator was trying to force um, force a kind of change in, in this area because you need to have a conversation with clients in order to explain all this. If you just say, do you want to risk your money? A lot of people would probably say no, thanks. The ancient trade-off between risk and reward. Thank you very much, Elaine. And if you want more detail on what these regulatory changes mean for you, do check out Elaine's article in this weekend's FT Money. And you'll find dozens of articles about other aspects of the planned regulatory changes on our website, www.ft.com forward slash money. You can also use our tools and calculators page to find an independent financial advisor near you. Still to come on the show... The pension tax dodges you should definitely avoid. First of all, though, let's take a look at the subjects of charitable donations. After all, it is the season of goodwill, and everywhere you go, charities are selling Christmas cards, distributing gift catalogues, or rattling collection tins. Donations to charity have been falling as austerity bites. Just this week, private bank Coots said that the number of £1 million plus donations to charity had fallen significantly. And last month, a new report estimated that overall giving had fallen by around 20%. Charities still get much of their income the old-fashioned way through cash donations. More recently, they've taken to employing so-called charity muggers, who loiter on outside stations and on high streets trying to persuade people to donate regularly via direct debit. This helps make charities' incomes more predictable and less lumpy, but some of the money collected goes to the salesman. There are much better ways to give to charity, and many of them can have favourable tax consequences for the donor too. Here to tell us a little bit more about them is Tris Lumley, who is Head of Development at the New Philanthropy Capital. Tris, one of the simplest things that we see is, uh, is gift aid. 
We often see the, a box, tick this box if you wish to gift aid. What is gift aid and how does it actually work? Well, gift aid is, uh, is a really smart way of making sure that your donation works as hard as it possibly can. And I think that's what we're really talking about today. So gift aid, essentially, if you're a taxpayer, then uh, if you tick the box, the charity can do all the hard work and claim the tax that you've paid already back on your donation. So if you give 80p, they can make that up and add the, the 25% on top of that uh, and make a pound in the donation. Okay, and you don't have to, you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to do anything at all apart from tick the box. The charity will do all the hard work um, and make sure that they get the extra donation on your behalf. Okay, and what about if you're a higher rate taxpayer? Do they get more money for, if you tick the box? Then you can um, then you can essentially claim back the additional tax that you've paid yourself. So if you're a higher rate taxpayer and you're um, making significant gift aided donations, you may want to take a look at that. Now, what about um, leaving money to charities um, in wills? A lot of charities uh, uh, campaign very mm. actively to get uh, legacies, presumably because the sums of money involved can be quite considerable. Yeah, wills and legacies are a really important part of, um, of of donations to the charity sector and actually represent something like about £2 billion a year. So um, it's not necessarily something that people want to think about all the time, but when you are going through your will, it's very sensible to think about whether you do want to make a, a legacy to a charity of your choice at the time. And because you're thinking about that in advance, that gives you a bit of a chance to think through your donation, maybe do a little bit of research and make sure that your um, your legacy will go to an organisation that um, works for a cause you really care about, but will also work as hard as it possibly can in the future so it's it's a great way there are lots of other ways that you can also make your donation work as hard as possible so some of those would be uh, payroll giving so if if you're working in um, uh, for an employer who has a payroll giving scheme then you'll be able to make your donation actually before tax and that's a really again straightforward easy way that you can make your donation and it may well be that your employer has a matching scheme so you know you may be giving ATP that's made up um, to a pound um, because it's before tax and then your employer may actually be matching that. So you might find that you're able to make your donation go a really long way by doing that. And is that a question of just, just asking your employer uh, whether, whether they're a member of the scheme or whether they would consider becoming um, part of it? Yeah, absolutely. There are lots of campaigns to get lots of employers signed up but if you don't know about your employer um, payroll giving scheme then do ask the question maybe of your HR department and if they're not on board then get them on board. Okay now many of our listeners and readers uh, invest in the stock market as well and they may have small parcels of shares left over after things like uh, rights issues, script dividends or, or takeover bids. Can they donate those to charity? Yeah, absolutely they can. Um, people can now give uh, shares much as they do cash and other donations. And there are schemes out there that will help to pull together small numbers of shares that you may kind of have left over. Um, so share gift, for example, to aggregate those shares and to be able to make sensible donations on your behalf. And just finally, there are a whole... Um load of other ways to donate to charity i notice every time i use a cash machine now there's a donate to charity button i see adverts for for text uh, giving services and uh, the other day i saw someone using a charity credit card are those uh, worthwhile ways to to give to charity or are they fairly inefficient in terms of the the amounts of money raised it's it's always worth looking at the details of each scheme to to check um, how much of your donation is is going through to the the cause that you want to support, but in most cases um, organizations will be charging a fairly small processing fee on your behalf to do something that really makes your 
donation um, pretty efficient and, and painless. So yeah, lots of those schemes make an awful lot of sense. It's also worth, I think, at, at Christmas time looking at schemes that are out there to to match your donation and make that go even further. So things like um, the Big Gives Christmas campaign, if one of the charities that you want to give to is covered within their Christmas challenge, you'll find that uh, philanthropic donors or foundations will be matching your donation at the moment. So you may be giving a pound and, and two pounds or three pounds may be going to the charity. So there are yeah, lots of different ways to make your donation work as, as hard as it possibly can. And for us, we'd say at MPC that um, if you find the cause that you re- really believe in and pick a charity that you really want to support, then find the ways that work best for you to support them. Uh, and there are lots of things that you can do to make sure that uh, however much you give, the charity is actually getting more. Thank you very much, Tris. And page 12 of this weekend's FT Money includes a useful guide to the various different ways you can help charities and save yourself tax, complete with website addresses for the useful organisations that Tris has mentioned. You can also read that online at ft.com forward slash money. Finally today, we take a look at overseas pensions. Many Brits, faced with cold and dreary weather and ever-rising costs, dream of retiring to sunnier and possibly cheaper shores – and there's no shortage of advisors peddling offshore pension schemes to help you do so. But you need to tread very carefully. While there are legal and legitimate ways to take your pension with you when you retire abroad, known as QROPs, there are also lots of schemes being promoted that could either cost you money or put you in breach of the law, or both. Joe Cumbo has spent a lot of time investigating these schemes. Joe, what do savers need to look out for? Um, Well, there is a a regime in place, as you mentioned, called CROPS, and that allows um, transfers to be made overseas free of UK tax from a UK pension scheme to an offshore pension scheme. Anything that occurs outside that uh, arrangement, which is monitored by the, the revenue, could result in costs and charges. So the first thing is to make sure that whatever you're being recommended, if you're overseas or indeed based in the UK, that the scheme is on the CROPS list. Okay. Can you give us some examples of of things that you've come across that are being offered by advisors both in this country and elsewhere um, that that fall foul of those regulations? Right. The crops were set up in, in 2006 to give individuals who genuinely intend to move abroad a stepping stone to take their retirement income with them so they can draw their income in a local currency, etc. There's the benefits and, and ease of doing that. Where they get worried and where there have been big concerns for the revenue over the past five years is when people remain in the UK, they don't go overseas with their pension Um, And there are lots of schemes who are slipping into that space because there are gaps in the rules and promoting aggressive tax planning opportunities in jurisdictions which have lower income tax rates, for example, tax havens, etc. And they've established the pension offshore and they've remained in the UK and that's where it's created problems for individuals. And there are still schemes of that nature being marketed and promoted to UK residents who don't have any intention to move overseas and that's where some advisors are getting concerned that those individuals will expose themselves to tax charges if the revenue does clamp down on that particular scheme. Okay and are there any particular uh, favourite destinations for these uh, overseas pension transfers? Well there's low tax havens as we know there's Guernsey, there's Jersey, the Isle of Man and Cyprus but over the past couple of years the revenue has clamped down on those schemes. It's uh, took dramatic action to close 
um, Guernsey, for example, um, because of concerns that those schemes weren't compliant, but they were very popular with British investors. It's sort of very close to the UK. Lots of money was being shifted over there, but that... That doesn't continue to be the case as much anymore since there was a big shake-up. Malta's quite popular at the moment. It has a double taxation agreement with um, the UK, so it seems to be a more secure destination for offshore money. Presumably, even setting aside the, the legality of these um, schemes, moving your pension overseas but continuing to take it in the UK sounds like quite a risky thing to do anyway. You might be faced with... Um, have receiving pension income in a foreign currency or and what is what's the the regulatory the sort of investor protection aspect of having well, a pension overseas well it's very very good to point this out because a lot of these schemes are people approached when they're overseas for example if they've moved over to spain or another country they'll see an ad in a paper for expats um telling them about the benefits of drawing your income overseas. But if that is arranged by um, an advisor overseas, it's it's outside of the remit of the UK regulatory authorities. So they're powerless to act if they, for example, you get bad advice or the the company goes under, you can't recover your money, there's no safety net for you. And the same applies to anyone in the UK who's approached by advisors offshore. Now, this is happening quite frequently. I've seen mail shots from overseas companies to UK-based advisors asking them to promote schemes. But the protections are significantly less for anyone who goes through an overseas scheme because the regulations in terms of disclosure of costs, for example, are not the same as they are in the UK. I mean, I heard today that commissions, some secret commissions on business arranged in Spain, for example, can be as high as 12% and people don't know about it because there's not the same duty to disclose those commissions taken on transfers. So it's important to make sure that you're protected. Well, thank you, Joe. So it really is a caveat emptor if you're thinking of taking your pension overseas. You can read a full expose of the various schemes that uh, induce you to take your pension overseas in this week's FT Money. But that's all for this week's FT Money show, and in fact, for this year. You can read our review of 2012 in the 22nd of December edition of FT Weekend, and our look ahead to 2013 will appear on the 29th of December. And you can always catch up on all these articles at ft.com forward slash money, where you can also catch our latest blog posts at ft.com forward slash money matters. We'll be back with more money news in downloadable form in January 2013. But until then, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Elaine, Joe and our special studio guest, Tris Lumley. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.
Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin. While the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.